detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Illustrated Fan, a podcast dedicated to animation, part of the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Barlbaugh. I'm joined, uh, as always, by my co-host, Dave Becker. Dave, how are you doing tonight? I am doing very well, and uh, we have a very cool episode tonight. This is one I've been looking forward to. Yes, dare I say this might be the episode that we maybe created the podcast for. (laughs) Yeah, in a sense. No, most. Yeah, at least let's put it this way: we knew at some point we were going to be getting around to this, and probably sooner than later when we when we sat down and first talked about this. Yeah, I think I think the best way to say it is this: this particular artist, you know, I don't want to say director; doesn't quite cover it. This particular right. artist and his films were definitely on our minds when we thought, "Hey, we'd love to get together and talk animation." And yeah. actually, we have a another guest tonight. We've had a pretty good run on on guests. We've had Victor Rodriguez, and we had last time we had Greg Bench on. Dave, I'll actually go ahead and let you uh, introduce him. Absolutely, this is a my coworker uh, from from the deli, which I've talked about on other podcasts. <laughs> Someone who's a big fan of the artist that we are discussing tonight. Uh, I know we, we've talked about uh, uh, talked about this person at work, and um, also someone who is uh, going to school for animation to be an animator. And it is my coworker Christian Neck. Hello, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, thank you for uh, for joining us. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, we're super excited to have you here, Chris. Thanks, uh, thanks for stopping by, and. Chris, I wanted to, before we get started, just give you an opportunity to kind of uh, talk a little bit because I know, and, and Dave has mentioned, that uh, you're, you're going to school for animation or interested in animation. Uh, just let uh, everybody know a little bit about that and maybe what got you interested in it in the first place. Sure. Um, so I'm currently a full-time online student at Full Sail University. Um, I'm actually graduating in February, so I'm, I'm near the end. Very cool. Um I went for 3D animation, um, but obviously, you know, 2D animation has a pretty, pretty great influence on that. Um, but actually, the, the reason why I got into animation was Miyazaki, ironically enough. Um, uh, the, fir- the first game I played was Diablo back when it came out in the early 2000s and I was like, oh, my God, these graphics, you know, the storytelling is so great. And then actually my first Miyazaki movie was uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky. Very and, cool. Yeah. And since then, I was like, this, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I've been, uh, you know, prepping myself for that since I was like six. 
<laughs> so a combination of Diablo and Miyazaki. Video games and movies, yep. Yeah, hey, that's... Uh, and Diablo seems so long ago now. Right? Oh, man, I miss it. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because we've been talking recently and a lot of, you've been saying a lot about, you know, getting into video games and, 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 and different things. But you recently saw a trailer for the new Buzz Lightyear movie. Yes. That had you really excited saying, hey, I really think I might look into movies as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy because, you know, like I said, I'm a student and I've done everything from VFX animation. Obviously, I've done rotoscoping, like everything from the beginning of the pipeline to the end, you know. Oh. And so I can look at a, a video now and I'd be like, I know exactly how they did that. So, wow. And I think, they know, hey, I can do that, too. So, you know, why not? Cool. Yeah, you have a great you do get a greater appreciation for that. And when I saw probably one of my first Miyazaki movies all the way through was about the time I was at the end of high school going into college. And I was initially it was a long twisted road, but I was originally an art major with a specialization like in illustration. Oh, no way. I remember making around the time, probably around the time I saw Princess Mononoke, which is one of the movies we'll talk about tonight, that uh, making an animated film. But it was basically early taking early photoshop and like having like 750 layers and then oh trying to put God. that yeah, like into after back. effects <laughs> it was like a psa about drug abuse but it ended up with everyone being eaten by the by their hallucinations <laughs> it's crazy how far we've come with technology it is right even just in the in a kind of that period of time which i think gives you a really good appreciation for what we're talking about tonight because the level uh you're right like you realize the technology's come really far to the point that we can do a lot of things uh, a little more easily and, and definitely a little bit more um, time effective, you know, but oh, yeah. there's the question, there's always the question of artistry. And I think that comes up uh, now is some things are so easy to do, but are they always being done? You know, because we can do them easier and faster now, what, what's the result look like? And, and is there something to be said, you know, back when George Lucas had to go down to the Tunisian desert <laughs> and drag that, you know, hoverboard thing across the sand and then film it. Was that a little bit better than him being able to dump whatever he wanted to dump into a computer? But, uh, <laughs> well, I think it depends. Yeah. You know, cause sometimes if you're looking for that really realistic, like bare bone shot, like go for it, get the prop and, you know, walk it across the desert. Right. But if it's something, I don't know. I feel like if it's a little out there, something a little unrealistic, or something that's just so time-consuming, it's just so easy to slap it on the laptop, you know, and just do it digitally. Yeah, and I think it's the artists who do a combination, who find a way to integrate those things together, or, or don't see any one as the singular answer. Uh, I think of the Villa, Denis Villeneuve's, uh, most of his movies, but most recently Dune, you know. There's so much in Dune that is... Uh, VFX, you know, computer animation, there's something in there that's not, and they blend together in such a way that sometimes you're not entirely sure what mm -hmm. is and isn't. And I think that's where you, you get kind of the texture of the worlds. Uh, but that's very cool. And the little bit of things I've seen that David showed me that you're working on, uh, Chris, look, look really awesome. And yeah. uh, I'm excited to see more from me and see, see uh, which direction you actually go in. But as you kind of pointed out, we are talking tonight about Hayao Miyazaki, the uh, Japanese animator, uh, who founded Studio Ghibli, which has put out a huge output of animated films over the years. Not all of them directed by Miyazaki, but I think it's probably fair to say that he and a couple other animators are probably the driving force behind it. Yeah. And 
uh, it's interesting now because I think even mentioning this, even if people don't recognize the name Studio Ghibli or Miyazaki in the mainstream, if I started to mention some of the titles, movies like Spirited Away and Ponyo, that because of the uh, of Disney sort of getting involved there in the in the early 2000s, a lot of people have an understanding, at least know of him now and of Studio Ghibli. So he's found his way into the mainstream. I think that for many years, particularly in the 80s, and in the 90s, uh, when it, basically we didn't have the internet and we could sort of connect immediately and find these things, uh, the best that we could usually do is find some sort of like badly dubbed, heavily edited, you know, American uh, hack job that was, you know, uh, Nausicaa comes to mind that there was a version out there that was maybe one third of what that movie actually is. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. That does it injustice. Yeah, yeah. So what we we're gonna do is talk about two of those films tonight. There were two that we kind of put them in your court to, to to pick the movies, and you picked Princess Mononoke, which was released in Japan in 1997, here in the states in 1999, and actually was kind of a big deal. I think of, of how that was handled and how it was released. Um, uh, that's one of those few cases where you look back and you're like, okay, Miramax did something right, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but uh. That movie, and then we're going to talk Spirited Away, released in Japan in 2001 and released here in the States in 2002. And they're they're both movies I'm really uh, anxious to discuss. Uh, and before that, we do have we wanted we wanted to talk about a short film. We do that every episode. And what we did this time was picked a short film that is really the first thing that uh, that Hayao Miyazaki did on his own in terms of he was sort of the director. He was the because he had worked on. Uh, lots of other projects, including the Lupin the Third TV series, which is kind of a silly spy, you know, a very, very goofy sort of James Bond-esque spy adventure that he worked on. He also, uh, one of his first theatrical movies was a Lupin the Third movie. I think the Tower of Cagliostro. Tower of Cagliostro, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and it, it's not quite at the same level as his other work. And it's partially because it is coming off the back end of that, of that TV series. And so it has that style. Right to it and so you can see his style evolving there but it's a little different but this is uh, his first short film so we'll talk about that in a moment before we did that i wanted to give everybody an opportunity and starting with you chris just to kind of uh your first exposure to miyazaki uh and what what that was and how, how it impacted you when you first saw it uh and just a little bit about that sure the castle in the sky was the first movie i saw and he was the one that got me into wanting to create movies and animation. So, I mean, I think that's a you know pretty big impact there to, yep. to steer my career for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I saw uh, Castle in the Sky. It was actually kind of a funny story because uh, it, was my, it was my birthday. Um, and I was out with my cousin. With like at a, we were shopping at Costco. And my aunt, she was like, hey, you know, you, you two pick a movie. And uh, she picked a Barbie movie, and I picked, you know, Castle in the Sky. And I was like, this looks really <laughs> cool. But because she's a brat, she's like, no, I want that one. So I got the Barbie movie for some reason. And <laughs> she got Castle in the Sky. <laughs> I mean, we watched both of them together, but I was like, what the hell? But well, how, You got uh, left with the I'm Barbie guessing, movie. I'm guessing the, bar <laughs> yeah, me. I'm guessing the Barbie movie wasn't very memorable. 
I don't, yeah, I don't even remember what it was. I just remember that it was Barbie. <laughs> not the instigation to get you into animation, I'm guessing. Absolutely not. Have you seen those movies? <laughs> I've seen, well, I have. And the main reason I have is because at one point my daughter was kind of into them. But the cool thing about my daughter, she quickly vacillated to sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And oh, yeah. <laughs> stayed there. That's and where it's at. <laughs> so she's, uh, she's now the one that's like, Dad, let's watch Krampus. And I'm like, right on. So, uh, <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that's, that's a really cool one, Castle in the Sky. And what's interesting is a few years, because uh, I saw it, Probably shortly after I found uh, Princess Mononoke, then I kind of tracked them all down. And they still didn't really have a good, like, uh, U.S. release. But Castle in the Sky, I remember a few years later when uh, Disney released Atlantis, I want to say. I think it was Atlantis in, like, 2001. Atlantis, The Lost Empire. I was watching. I'm thinking, wow, they just kind of wholesale lifted a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) from Castle in the Sky directly into this movie. But um, It's crazy the influence these movies have on, like, literally everything else. Yes, yeah, it, it's very, it's very substantial, and I think it was happening long before we before we were even aware of them, and that was probably to some some benefit. Is you know they had these great Japanese animated films, so like well, no one here's seen them, so we can still borrow <laughs> kind of liberally from from everything. And Dave, how about you in terms of first time you encountered uh, Miyazaki? For me, uh, the first time was on the big screen, and it was in two thousand two when I took my sons to see Spirited Away. Very cool. That that was my introduction to um, Miyazaki. Now I knew who he was before that, but I rem- I just heard so much about how amazing this movie was. Um, it was on a I think it was a Saturday morning, and my wife had something going on. I said, "Well, I'll take the boys and I'll take them to see Spirited Away." And I remember being a little nervous because it was almost two hours, and at that point, two thousand two, my sons would have been six and three. So I said, you know, tricky age to sit there for two hours. Uh, and also they said it was PG, which meant it had, they said there were some images in it that might scare young kids. Oh, yeah. All right? And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, I'm not too sure. Well, I'll tell you, my, the, from the moment it started to the end, their eyes were glued to the screen. No, nobody fell asleep. Nobody said they had to go to the bathroom, which is really ironic because when we go to a restaurant at that point, my youngest son, every 10 minutes had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> nobody, everybody just, they, both of them just sat there, eyes glued to the screen, not, I mean, like on the edge of their seats at most points. Watching that movie, they were mesmerized by it. And it was an, it was a great experience and also a great introduction to Hayao Miyazaki. Because, you know, and it, it is, uh, you know, a lot of people, including John Lasseter, say that that's his masterpiece, Spirited Away. And I tend to agree. It is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. As a matter of fact, I think it's number 10 on my list of top 10 favorite movies. And, you know, I absolutely love it. But all of the subsequent Miyazaki movies that I've seen have matched it. Well, not matched it, have at least impressed me to the point that I realized this is somebody really special. And I, I go back, there was a, t- I, I had, um, I don't know if you remember Nathan back in the early two thousands uh, or the nineties into the two thousand, Roger Ebert had that, you know, ask them, ask uh, the answer man. Yeah. Answer man. I had sent the question into him about the sight and sound poll. And I said, you know, how come there aren't animated movies on the sight and sound polls? You know, they release every 10 years. Uh, he actually answered that and it made his yearbook 
2004, I want to say, his yearbook, where he said, well, animation, what it is, is a lot of people look at the auteur uh, concept when they're looking at movies as the director. And animation by design is a collaborative effort. You know, there really is no one person, even though there's a director, there's a lot of visions involved. But he said in his answer, with the exception of Hayao Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki is considered the only auteur in animation or one of the only auteurs in animation. And this is, again, I'm going back to like 2003 when I asked this question. Uh, And that's really what he is. I think I read somewhere with Spirited Away where there was, I don't know, 180,000 different drawings and he personally oversaw or drew 120,000 or 130,000 of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's stunning. That's absolutely amazing. It's, it's crazy. And what's interesting, I think that we'll get here into in a minute is how, what that translates to on screen and how I think it does make a difference and how it is different than seeing sort of that assembly by committee sort of feel to anime, not animation, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I think what's uh, what you do see in, in particularly all of Miyazaki's directed works is a very personal hand to it, you know, a very personal touch. Uh, but this, there are themes. Yes. You know, when, when you, when you think of a Hitchcock movie, they have themes or when you think of like Howard Hawks, these movies have a style to them, a rhythm to them. Same with Miyazaki. Yeah. You know, it's the exact same with Miyazaki. And then you get that feeling that that's because that handprint is on there. So, so indelibly, so specifically, and uh, we'll talk about, I did get to see two documentaries about Miyazaki. And when one was more generally about when Miyazaki was running studio uh, Ghibli, particularly when he was working on his, what was at that point supposed to be his final film, the wind rises. <laughs> so many things have been, the fact that two movies we're talking about today that for most of us were the starting points of Miyazaki were two movies that he was retiring, you know, he was not, retiring yeah, after each one. Yeah, He yeah. was retiring after each one was never going to make another one. So my, my uh, initial experience with Miyazaki is probably a little goofier and it happened in probably like 94, I would want to say. And my, I used to work for a while, like uh, my dad worked part-time at a video store, and that explains why I've seen so many crappy movies, I think, uh, and good movies at the same time. But, uh, you know, somebody put a list up of 100 bad sci-fi movies, and I see 97 of them, you know. And part of that impressive. is, is yeah, I don't know if impressive is right, depressing or <laughs> impressive, one of the two. And uh, part of that is because I worked as a critic for a while, and the other part is you know, the video store thing. But I remember him bringing a movie home. It was primarily, I think, aimed for my my younger siblings, I have, of which I have three. And it was a Hemdale video, which released nothing but mostly garbage, like just bottom-of-the-barrel kid stuff. And then once in a while, something that they had picked up from elsewhere uh, internationally, like Little Nemo and Slumberland and stuff like that. And they had oh. picked up My Neighbor Totoro. And the box cover art looked like something you would dig out of the Dollar General bin. <laughs> like this big goofy looking cat on the front of it. And it, like it was Miyazaki's design, but it was like really just poor looking. It, it just looked like, wow, they threw this together and then sent it over to Japan to get animated. <laughs> and I having no idea who he was. So they put this in and it's horribly dubbed. It's been chopped up a little bit too. And yet within about 10 minutes of it, when I'm like, I'm joking with my siblings, I'm like, Oh, look, they dad rented the lion King. And I stick it in the VCR for them. And they're like, what is this? 
<laughs> and and at first you're like, oh, this is garbage because your your expectation is that. But with this feeling of this is completely, I'm going to write this off, and it's not being in its best presentation by any means. With about ten or twenty minutes, you start to realize that this is something different than what you expected it to be, and it's the images that start to kind of because. There's that image, which I hear is where Miyazaki started with this film, which is about these little kids who meet these uh, earth spirits a while. And in and the, and the plot, again, it's very simple in this case. They want to get to the hospital to see their mother, and they kind of go on this journey with these characters, these forest spirits. And this animism plays all throughout Miyazaki's work, but in this film, it's pretty and uh, it, it's a significant part of the story. And it begins, you know, there's that shot that really begins when they're waiting in the rain at the bus stop. And then this creature, this Totoro, which is a big, fluffy, kind of cat-like character, uh, looks like a cross between a cat and a wombat. It's like kind of sitting underneath the umbrella. And that image is what I hear Miyazaki began the entire concept of Totoro with. Uh, and the movie sprang from there. And that image, seeing that image was like, wow, this is cool. And then two seconds later, this bus pulls up that's a giant cat. You know, and they get inside this cat and they sit on these seats. And it was at that moment I thought, this is not, what is this? This is not a ripoff. Where did this come from? And I, for years, so, you know, when the movie's done, you're like, what, what was that? But you never forgot it. You know, we always joke about Totoro and be like, somehow they managed to pull, you know, and then it dawns on me, this came from somewhere else. Like, this is not. And uh, but I didn't I didn't pick up on Miyazaki as a name at that point or anything like that. It wasn't really until Princess Mononoke gets a, a release, uh, and again it was released here in 1999, and it became kind of a big deal. Like uh, Miramax got it; they did a great. Uh, this was a start, I think, of English dubs for animation. They were actually a big kind of deal. Like I can't think of. Kiki's Delivery Service, you know, let me strike that. I had seen Kiki's Delivery Service 2, again, released on a eh, so-so VHS copy, you know, in like 95 or something. But also, another movie where you watch it and you think, that was entirely different than what I expected it to be. But when Princess Mononoke was released, they released it in the theaters. It had a voice cast of like Billy Bob Thornton, Billy Crudup, uh, Claire Danes, Gillian Anderson, yeah, it had a you really know, Keith good David. Uh, voice cast. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mini Driver. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. Uh, even even strangely, like uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, <laughs> who, yeah, <right>. who, who <laughs> may, they managed to fold her into the story in a way that she doesn't seem out of place, you know? And uh, right. just a great job all around. And then releasing it into theaters. And at this point, I was kind of frequenting Ain't It Cool News. I, I know you did too, Dave. And yeah, this is I where this is my kind of pipeline a point when I realized all oh, other people like the same weird things that I like, you know, everybody knows now it isn't surprising to know that everyone loves the evil dead or loves, you know, a chopping mall or any of this stuff or, or Miyazaki. But then it was harder to find that. And they, there were, there were stirrings of, wow, this is something special. You need to go out and see it. And so I, it was Roger Ebert's review of it though. He gave it like a four star review. We were talking about Ebert. Uh, and there were things that he said in that review that just made me think I need to seek this out and go see it. And that was that was my experience with him on the big screen. And it was sort of like amazing and kind of transformative. Like you said, uh, Chris, it makes you it it makes you realize that, okay, maybe I can't maybe I'm not going to make out of the gate a movie that's a quality Miyazaki. But it was a it was a great kind of uh, inspiration to know that anyone could make anything like this with animation. 
And I think that that's the benefit of some of the early Walt Disney films, uh, even some of the movies that we've talked about on this podcast, even going back to something like the uh, that very early Prince Ahmed movie that we watched, uh, Dave, that you see it and you think, wow, this can be done. This is sign of a testament to what can actually be accomplished through animation. And it takes it out of that Saturday morning cartoon feel. Not that there's anything wrong with Saturday morning cartoons, but it kind of makes you realize that this is a lot bigger and a lot more impressive than you you previously imagined that this is every bit uh, a legitimate cinematic art form just like uh like live action films are and yes. i'm going to turn it over here in a minute to chris to set up mononoke but i do want to read just very briefly the first few sentences uh that ebert says in the princess mononoke review because they apply to animation in a general sense and i think that it kind of uh it really touches on to me why I love animation, why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. And this is his first paragraph. I go to the movies for many reasons. Here is one of them. I want to see wondrous sights not available in the real world in stories where myth and dreams are set free to play. Animation opens that possibility because it's freed from gravity and the chains of the possible. Realistic films show the physical world. Animation shows its essence. And I thought that sentence, that last sentence particularly, are oh, was just really good because he says animated films they're not copies of real movies they're not shadows of reality but they create a new existence in their own right and i think if you want to capture what miyazaki's doing in in animation it's that right there you know it's not trying to capture the physical world it's trying to capture the essence of that world yep yeah i like I that quote. that was really that was really good when he wasn't slagging on video games, Ebert could be quite eloquent. Yes, I am video games or horror. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. He could, uh, he could really do it. He, he wasn't a horror fan either. Um, I think what it is with, with Miyazaki for me is how he how he can combine real characters into these worlds of gods and spirits. I mean, a lot of these play into some of his best movies. You You have these... These um, these characters, they're either gods, they're spirits, mythology, you know, uh, plays a, a big part in it. But yet they're sort of relating in a way that that they're that maybe not, you know, the spirits, but the real there are real characters involved. When you think of something like Kiki's Delivery Service. All right. This is about a witch and she's going out to um, uh, to, to sort of make her way as a witch and doing whatever she can. She has her talking cat there. Um, and I love Kiki's Delivery Service. I always say to anyone, if you have a young daughter, show them Kiki's Delivery Service. Because I think they're going to love it. I really do. Um, but then even in a lot of his other movies, you know, the, the two we're going to be talking about tonight might be the best example. But you mentioned My Neighbor Totoro. That one as well. Even Ponyo. That film has something along those lines and, and, and Howl's Moving Castle. All of these films have that, that, that sort of the combination of, of, of the, the, um, the supernatural with the natural. And it all blends together in a way that they're all real characters. And it just seems like it's, it's just an organic way to tell the story and, or, or an organic sort of story is what I guess I'm trying to say, you know, where it just sort of, it, it's that that blending together of the supernatural and the natural, it he does it perfectly. 
He does. And I, I think of a movie like Porco Rosso that we haven't talked much about, where the most of that movie takes place in what we would consider the real world, but it's a very romanticized version of that real world. But, right. you know, it's it's funny because that's a good example of that almost subtle blending where the fantasy is there. But you've got a character who's a, you know, he's an Italian World War One fighter pilot, but he's also a pig. And right. <laughs> on those two elements, Miyazaki doesn't ever forget either one of those elements. It's that perfect marriage. He's a pig. They delve into the fact that he's kind of a pig. We're not entirely sure what happens there, why he is the way he is, but that is as important. The fact that he's a pig is as important to the story <laughs> as the fact that he's a war pilot. And I think that right. kind of like that gives you a good basis for what Miyazaki does when he approaches these these worlds. So before we do start on the two uh, the two larger movies i did want to talk about we were looking for a short film and we found one uh from what 1972 uh almost 50 years going on almost 50 years ago. 50 years ago this would have been the first thing that miyazaki directed sort of himself that he was really in charge of wasn't the first thing he worked on he was working on a lot of stuff um he, with Takahata at the time, and there were a lot of TV series. Go Panda is one that he was working on, and I've seen some of the per, of the the those earlier uh, Japanese animations that he worked on, and a lot of them were kind of of the uh, TV kid show variety. Um, they aren't bad; they're interesting things to see. Uh, they would be comparable, and some of them found their way over in America, you know, in sort of uh, uh, different versions. Again, cut and edited uh, the same way that sort of. Um, you know, when we had, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, who is it? Uh, the mighty Adam Astro boy shows up over here and, you know, on American shores. And it looks, it looks a little bit different. It's about the same. This is a short, it's, it's on YouTube as a short film. And it's, it kind of baffled me a little bit. It's called Yuki son. It's a short film about a little girl who, uh, essentially is kind of orphaned. She's looking for her mother. It's, uh, it's kind of taking place in it in kind of a it looks like that that you know post war Japan uh, where a lot of families have been separated, but it's really hard to tell exactly when this is happening. And she's an orphan girl; she gets adopted into a family. There's a lot of melodrama going on. Uh, you're seeing all this happen in about a four minute span of time, including her yeah. sort of running through the fields and interacting with nature. And every time something sort of very melodramatic happens, like you know, something uh, she's cast out of another home or something like that. It's interjected with her smashing something over the head with a hammer or something like that. <laughs> but when she likes somebody, when she likes somebody, she smacks them. Yeah, yeah. So, and so they interject this, and it's done with her like it does one having a hammer or something, just bam, and it looks it was a shovel, a shovel. Yeah. Like that. yeah, it looks like something from like a Popeye sort of cartoon. Right. You know, is basically the best way to describe it. And and there's a couple scenes where you can see the loop in the third animation kind of style, where a whole bunch of characters are sort of running through a field or something. And what I realize now is that he directed the pilot for a. TV series that we really don't know whether it went on to be a TV series or not. That's what this felt yeah. like. It felt like a commercial for either a book or a TV series. It was. It felt like a, just a snippet of it because things are happening yeah. and you just can't keep up. And there's a narrator like on up. it. And what I've yeah. learned now reading about it is that what we're seeing is really all, as far as most people are aware, this is about the only thing that still seems to exist. Uh, and it was... What we're seeing is literally what we think it is. It's essentially a 
collection, a trailer after the fact, you know, of the pilot that Miyazaki made. So this four minute film that I'll put in the show notes, it's available on on YouTube, YouTube is not the actual film. It is a summation or almost like a teaser for the episode, which was then going to be the pilot for a show. Uh, personally speaking, it looks like you would expect it to look. It's uh, the animation is rather it's it's decent animation for what they're clearly working with, which is a TV sort of budget. Uh, the characters are kind of stiff. A lot of it looks like still art. The one thing I will say goes back to what I said when I was talking about my neighbor Totoro. Even looking at this, even with the goofy asides of her smashing things in the head and the fact that the plot kind of looks like a very melodramatic orphan story, you figure her mother's going to show up. And before the end of this four minutes, her mother shows up. But uh, (laughs) So not a lot of suspense there. But again, understanding that these are clips from a longer episode, what I was looking for was trying to see the Miyazaki style coming through. And you actually get that. And you get a lot of... The themes that he worked with, the, you, uh, his growing up in the kind of tumult of what was going on in Japan and and through these wars and things like that, they inform, I think, greatly his worldview that shows up in many of the movies we're going to talk about, at least one of them very significantly in one of the movies we're going to talk about tonight. I think in both films, ultimately, uh, that idea of the orphan girl uh, or this, this child separated from their families are all through Studio Ghibli work. Uh and, and, and in a much darker way, something like Grave of the Fireflies, not directed by uh, Miyazaki, but by his, count, his counterparts, this has a couple sequences where you look at it and you can see the Miyazaki coming through. Specifically, I think the scenes where they talk about how the little girl likes to go and get lost in nature. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's a scene specifically of her, and I can't quite remember exactly. I watched this a couple days ago. She's holding a pig and riding a pig, I think, at the same yeah. time. And it's just this pig is huge. This is a giant pig. And they're kind of walking along. The, the, the breeze is blowing. The, the grass is blowing. The trees are moving in the background. The sun is there. And it's exactly a Miyazaki kind of image. It captures that human kind of ensconced in nature. It's humorous and funny. But it's also imaginative. You're like, why is she holding a pig and riding a pig at the same time? And that was a moment in the in this series of images that caught me and said, if you hadn't told me that, I could have still picked out the Miyazaki. I think that that and the the the, the young girl as a main character. Yes, yeah, that's very. That true. was something that was a, a big focus of his when even in the movies we're going to talk about tonight and a lot of his other films. He really looks at, you know, he, he really sort of focuses on these younger girls as his main character. And it works. It works, you know, perfectly for the films, for what he's trying to do with them. I mean, even with with uh, Kiki's Delivery Service and, uh, you know, going forward to the ones we're going to be talking about and, and a little bit in My Neighbor Totoro. There's, there's a strength there where he gives these characters, um, these young girls... Uh, this this sort of um, uh, life, this vibrancy, yeah, and and the agency, you know? uh, Nausicaa, yeah. Valley of the Wind, one of his Nausicaa, the Valley yeah. of the Wind, one of my actually one of my favorite Miyazaki's is Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. Yeah. I think that's a great one, and that goes back to the themes you're talking about with nature. Nature plays very heavily into all of his films, and the young female uh, characters, the central characters being young girls. I think really um, is another one of his, and you see both of those in this movie. Again, 
because it's a trailer, sometimes we don't know what the hell's going on. She runs into what is it, a lighthouse yeah. <laughs> and goes up to see an old man and is upset that he's dying. And I remember where I'm thinking, where the hell did he come from? What's and that's the moment I realized <laughs> we're watching a trailer. Oh, this is a trailer. Yeah. This is a commercial for a bigger project yeah. or a book or something. This is like he's taking just clips out of it and giving us uh, highlights of it. Um, and the young girl, and by the way, we should say Yuki's son, it's S-U-N. Yes, as yes. As in, you know, as, as in source you know, the moon, of heat the sun. on the planet Earth. Source of heat, <laughs> yes, as opposed, to, as opposed to daughter yes, and son. Yeah. It's Yuki's son. Um, but the character itself, it's, it's a very upbeat character. You get that, no matter what, even with what's happened to her. You get the feeling that yeah, this this girl is this this is this is a strong individual, and she's kind of like the center of everybody that she's hanging around with. They sort of gravitate towards her because of her energy, because of this sort of upbeat um, personality that she has. Even in this five minutes, you get that. Um, uh, yeah, maybe not so much when she's beating people over the head with a shovel or slapping them across the face because she really likes them or she likes talking to them, but. With everything else, it's just this girl is she's uh vibrant. That's what I keep going back. You get to, the feeling that this is a similar that, that maybe this template is sort of like the Annie story. You know, this is kind of like Japanese Annie. At least that's what yeah. I was kind of vibe I was getting. And the impressive thing is he does get the essence of that character in the kind of more limited animated style. The by the end of the four minutes, you have a pretty clear feeling of who this person is, even though what we're watching is a collection of 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 shots. And I thought that in itself was also impressive. I agree. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So let's move on then to the first movie we're going to talk about released again in 97 uh, in in Japan uh, is uh, Mononoke Haim. And then it was released is Princess Mononoke here in the States in 1999. I want to say fall of 99, somewhere in the September or October range. And it was in limited theaters. Uh, Another thing about that time was uh, it, it, if you guys might remember, they didn't really release many foreign films that weren't dubbed. You know, they were almost all. And I mean, that was the fortunate thing about Princess Mononoke is they actually got a nice, uh, they got a good dub and they also got people to integrate it into the film in a way that looks decent uh, because movies then up until like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, almost all movies, even ones that were being nominated for like best picture, they were all dubbed. You know, I remember trying to go yeah. see Life is Beautiful, Dave, like at the theater. And, and it was hard enough to find them in a theater to begin with. But when they were, unless you went to an art theater, they were almost always dubbed. And I think that yeah. changed with like movies like Crouching Tiger and Brotherhood of the Wolf that proved that you could financially make money off of a movie if you had to read it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember um, I, I I loved uh, subtitled films. Uh, that yeah. was one of the things. And, I, and it was uh, uh, the Criterion Collection. It was right after I got my first DVD player, I sort of discovered the Criterion Collection and all these foreign movies yeah. that they had that I was getting. And I'm watching them in their original language with the subtitles. I'm like, wow, you know what? This this is this is pretty amazing. And I would seek out subtitled movies in the theater. I remember uh, when I went to see, um, uh, God, what was it? Uh, Beat Takashi had done Zatoichi. Yeah, yeah. The Blind Swordsman. He did a, sort of a remake of that. I don't know. It was 2003. I yep, want to say somewhere 2003. around there. I remember I went right after work. It was on a Friday. I was I always used to flex and I'd get done early. And I went right after work, but the print hadn't arrived yet. 
So they told me, you know, try coming back tonight. So I went back at night to watch it. Well, by that point, you know, it's a Friday night and you get the kids in the theaters. And a lot of times back then, I'm sure even now, kids are jumping from theater to theater. Yeah, they don't know what they're you know, in for. Is, they don't know why, what it even see is. see the different movies. I remember sitting there. It was me, one other guy. I was in the back, one other guy up front, and these five kids are right in the middle. As soon as it starts and there are subtitles, the five kids get up and walk out. See, that's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gotta yeah. like uh, get them out of there right away. Exactly. But, yeah, get them, get them out of there because they 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 didn't know what they were getting into. It was yeah. subtitles and, like, and oh, anime okay, was out. hard to find. I mean, here in Baltimore, we had a, a video store just closed a few years ago called a Video America, and that place, like, it was valuable because it was one of the few places you could actually go and rent anime that had subtitles. And uh, like when this movie Princess Mononoke finally came to VHS. I remember going like across two counties to find a copy of it. And like his blockbuster would have, uh, you know, 72 copies of Armageddon and like one copy of Princess Mononoke. So, uh, but with that, with that, I'll turn it over to Chris to kind of set the movie up for us. Sure. Um, I just got the the plot here on, uh, IMDb. <laughs> I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we always like to rate IMDb and see do. how well they do with the plot. You know yeah. what? A lot of people seem to like it, so that's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this this synopsis is from Christopher Taguchi. Um, while protecting his village from rampaging Borgog demon, a confident young warrior Ashitaka is stricken by a deadly curse. To save his life, he must journey to the forests of the West. Once there, he's embroiled in a fierce campaign that humans were waging on the forest. The ambitious Lady Iboshi and her loyal clan use their guns against the gods of the forest and a brave young woman, Princess Mononoke, who was raised by a wolf god. Ashitaka sees the good in both sides and tries to stem the flood of blood. This is met by animosity by both sides as they each see him as supporting the enemy. That's actually really yeah. That actually That's gives you the impression that the person who wrote it actually watched the movie, <laughs> right, <laughs> until the end. Like, Christopher, <laughs> you're my man. Yeah, it's like <laughs> we've seen a few lately that had just been like. Man tries to stop asteroid from hitting oh, Earth, yeah. and you're like, "That's like yeah. six. My daughter will point out, "Dad, that that synopsis is six words," because <laughs> right. the Amazon a lot of times their synopsis will be basically pulled from like something like IMDb, and they're just like, "Dad, go back." I'm like, "Are you interested in that?" No, I just want you to see how short it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I picked this one because it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, no, that that, that sums it up one. pretty pretty well. So, uh, yeah. Chris, what was your what were what was your response uh, when you saw this one? Well, the first thing that, that really stood out to me was just how powerful and how big like nature played a role. I mean, I know nature has a big part in, in all of his movies, but it just seems more like human, like people, man versus nature. And there was almost like a like a, almost like a casual brutality with it all. You know, it's just yeah. kind of like, oh, yeah, here are the humans. You know, they just casually or or slaying these gods and these animals in the forests and basically just destroying everything they can for for greed and, and you know trying to take as much land as they can and uh, the, the biggest themes that i found in the movie were um there's a lot of verses i feel like so like man versus nature um i feel like man versus man because you have lady boshi and her clan and you know and she's 
an interesting and complex character in, in herself with Ashitaka, you know, how, you know, he, he's, you know, sees the good in her, but realizes her greed is taking her down a path that probably isn't the best for, uh, for the land, you know, and, and for the future. And then man versus self, you know, again, Ashitaka trying to fight his own demons, you know, literally and metaphorically, and while trying to, to stop this war from from raging, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just felt like his his Miyazaki's environmentalism was was pretty apparent in this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was apparent, uh, you know, with um, the fact that he had man fighting uh, against nature. It was basically man against nature, this movie. But one of the most interesting things about Miyazaki, and I, it'll, it'll come up again with the next movie we're going to discuss. None of his characters are one note. Yeah. Nobody is wholly good and nobody is wholly evil. You know, when you think of those old Disney movies, like a thousand, uh, or a thousand, 101 Dalmatians, Cruella DeVille, she's a villain. You know, she's just a, a straight up villain and Maleficent um, is a straight up villain. You don't get that with Miyazaki. These are not one note characters. There's something about each one that, that they bring something that you can connect to in every one of them. And in this one, especially, you know, there, there, when, when, um, when Ashitaki goes into that village, uh, of, of, of the men and he's sort of standing up to them, you know, when, when, uh, when Princess Mononoke, you know, sort of, uh, I guess invades the village. She's going after this woman. You still get the, you still get the feeling these are real characters. These are not just here's bad. Here's good. You see the good and the bad in all of them, even in nature, even in the characters, the gods of nature, you see the good and the bad. So you just, you know, it, it really makes for a very multi-layered picture when it comes from Miyazaki, because you're not just getting black and white, you're getting every shade of gray between them. You almost don't know who to root for. Yeah. And, and 10 minutes, uh, wait 10 minutes and you're rooting for someone yeah, else. Exactly. That's the really interesting thing. You know, you're rooting for somebody <laughs> who 10 minutes later, you're like, why the hell was I rooting for this person? They're a, they're a bastard. What am I doing? You know? And, and then 20 minutes later, you're like, Oh no, they're not as bad as I thought they were. That's one of the magic. Just like that's real the life. magic of him. <laughs> yeah. It's like real life. You're this is not just it's not cut and dry. Yeah. None of his movies are cut and dry. Every character has layers. Nobody is one note in a Miyazaki movie. Right. Just like Shrek is like an onion. <laughs> <laughs> like an onion. Yeah. Like an onion. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what Ebert's alluding to when he says that Miyazaki's films capture the essence of real life without trying to replicate it physically because there is a lot of fantasy in the, in this movie. However, I would argue that the way in which the characters are animated and the way they move and they have a certain lifelike element to them, but it is in, in how they're depicted. Uh, those old Disney films, a lot of them uh, are adapted from old fairy tales and they are intended for children. They're made almost knowingly for children with the idea that a child needs to see you know, things simplified down to a black and white, right? Like a good versus an evil, uh, you know, right. uh, love versus hate and those sorts of things. And I really, um, I really liked what you said a minute ago, Chris, maybe really happy to, uh, the term you used too, the casual brutality. There is yeah. a casual brutality to Princess Mononoke that doesn't really exist 
even the fantasy violence that pops up in something like most of all the other movies that follow it, like uh, Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle, and then even before it, the only other movie that shares this casual brutality is the other movie that it's most like, in my opinion, which is Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, which is another movie yeah. that's about the dichotomy, and about, that is a f- post-apocalyptic future world where humans are struggling against nature in a different sort of way. I like that this one goes back and sets it in the Iron Age. Uh, what I really love about this movie is that it feels like a as a fan of fantasy of, of high epic fantasy we were in the absolute doldrums in about 2000 uh dave can attest to this yeah. <laughs> uh oh yeah. this the it, science fiction and fantasy you sci-fi was you know we had just i don't know i still feel we suffered a blow that was the summer that you know phantom menace was supposed to come out and reinvigorate fantasy and sci-fi for everybody oh. And man, Ugh. it was a big disappointment. I mean, I, oh, we, I'm not going to yeah. litigate that here, but it was a disappointment. Even even <laughs> yeah, if you kind of liked it, I didn't. I didn't come out of it foaming at the mouth. There were things I enjoyed. No, about I, there it. were some people. Yeah. Who, there were people who despised that movie. No. I didn't despise. But it was it. a missed opportunity, and so the next, right, but, yeah. but it didn't. It didn't inspire. No, no, no. Uh, strong emotions of despise or love. Yeah, it was just. But people were so, you know. this was going to be the thing. People, you know, they would say, well, don't yeah. worry about whatever came out this summer. Just wait till next summer when Star Wars comes and, and, and saves us And all. I remember, I remember, I remember the summer of 2001 was a little disappointing too, because that was Planet of the Apes from Tim Burton. Yeah. Which was okay. It wasn't great. Jurassic Park 3, which had some moments, <laughs> but wasn't yeah. great. That's what we were getting around. Yeah, that time. they had a couple you know, others that the, didn't the, quite uh, hit for me there either. Final Fantasy, Spirits Within. I was excited for right, that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I do like uh, Spielberg's AI, but that's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> to discuss I, I'm, I'm a big fan of AI as well. Um, but that yeah. was originally a Kubrick film. Yes. That's a very interesting blend of Kubrick and Spielberg. But even by 2001, really you're is. starting to get a little bit more of this. But like 99. Around their great movies came out in 99. Don't get me wrong. It's one of my favorite years for movies. The Matrix had just hit right before Star Wars. But then what everyone's looking forward to is Lord of the Rings. Like, hey, are they going to deliver with this? And that was the next thing on the horizon. Oh, yes. And when I walked in the theater to see this movie, Princess Mononoke, this, uh, watching this was like, wow, this is everything I would want to see. Uh, to me, Princess Mononoke is a kind of perfect encapsulation of Tolkien and kurosawa sort of like taken and merged mm-hmm. into a film and watching it i was like wow even in here in animation the the freedom he's got to do those scenes that opening scene when this demon bursts out of the woods and it's not like any kind of demon you've ever seen in a movie a uh, squiggly dark moving shapes that have encompassed this animal underneath of it is a is a god that that resembles a giant boar but you don't see it because it's been completely uh, overtaken not just by the poison that was in this arrow but the hatred that is built into and is now seeping out of this monster and it's infecting the land it's infecting the people and this thing is just tearing through this countryside and here comes yeah, every time it takes a step the grass dies. yeah yeah and yeah. In, in in extreme yeah. detail you get to see this and here comes ashitaka on his red elk and it's just the scenes of of watching that elk run across the 
first over the cobbled brick wall and into the field and up the watchtower and watching that thing chase after him. It's just amazing. You realize you're in a completely different space. You're processing this in a completely different way. You are in this world. You're with these characters. And the time he takes to gently animate scenes of just these characters talking at a village meeting and hearing the old... The old man lament that when Ashitaka has to leave, well, we're the last of this race that was supposed to, this tribe was supposed to be wiped out already and, and we're sending our last prince out. And he, he, the camera pans down and you see these old guys that are clearly, nobody's having any more kids here. You know, <laughs> this is the end. Yeah. And the sadness that you get as you just pan this. And then movie could have skipped that completely, but it takes the time to pan all the way down that line. There's a scene later when you see Lady Eboshi, who at first when you see Iron Town and you get the feeling that she's the one that's caused most of this destruction in the wilderness. Uh, you, you Is this like anti-entity in Barter Town? You know, your first yeah. impression of her yes, is that she's right, ruling right. with an iron <laughs> fist. And then right. that it unveils that in a scene that most movies wouldn't slow down for where she takes him to see the lepers. And yes. you see the, the lepers. lepers. Yes taking care of themselves and explaining that she's the only one that cared about us. There's a brothel full of women there running the, the running uh, the, the furnaces and the, they, the men there, they're all outcasts. She's taken all these people in and she's made a functioning society out of them. This isn't like some kind of den of thieves and weirdos. This is a, a community of people who trust each other. And you're like, well, yes. And even though, even though what they're doing you can't get behind. They're trying. They're basically waged a war against nature. Yeah. But you realize that there's more to these characters than just that war. There's something else going on there. And it's that scene, you know, like you mentioned, with the lepers. When you go down there and these lepers are like, you know, yeah, everyone else was kind of, you know, she's the only one who gave us a chance and allowed us to do what it is we're doing. And she's not treating them as if they're servants, she's treating them as if they're equals. Yes. You know, and and that's one of the things about, like I said, about Miyazaki is he will never let his characters, he doesn't create any character. It seems like that he himself cannot connect to in some way. Yeah. And it's in every one of his movies, he can connect to every one of his major characters in some way. And that's what makes them. I think that's the magic of Miyazaki. There's never a point here where you feel that the story goes on autopilot either. And in fact, the story yeah. takes a backseat, as we've said, to a lot of the characters. And it gets pretty weird. Uh, and the re- my comparison to Tolkien is that he crafts this with a feeling for the history of each of these places that he goes to. Uh, these yeah. gods have had a longstanding history with one another. Uh, even actually, in the Japanese version, you get even more a sense that between Maro, the wolf god, and the boar god – that there's a little bit more of a relationship going on there than we're fully aware of initially. And San, who is the Princess Mononoke, the title, uh, has been growing up with these creatures. There's these whole histories and backgrounds to the land, the people, to the animals that he takes care in evoking without jumping fully into them. And that reminded me of Lord of the Rings. That and this kind of gentle sense of, uh, there's a gentle sensibility to the way the story unfolds, even when there are violent scenes like Ashitaka. It's almost startling. I'm watching with my kids when Ashitaka, whose arm is now affected with this demon, uh, he fires his arrow and realizes that it can take a man's head off. And Holy cow! Yeah. Takes a head off, takes arms, the arms off. The good off. Guy. Yeah. There's a cut. This for me <laughs> is the most violent of Miyazaki's oh, movies, without a doubt. And 
yeah. the casual brutality that Chris mentions pops up really towards the end when we just see hordes of animals being slaughtered, humans too. Yeah. Uh, it becomes I, I did a I did a funny thing here is when I went back to rewatch these, I I've got a stack of of uh, Blu-rays and stuff, much to the chagrin of my wife, building up Dave <laughs> on the side now of stuff that showed up <laughs> lately, and it's all sitting over there. And on the pile, fortuitously, at a couple movies, there was there was uh, Kira Kurosawa, uh, Best Buy just released a steelbook of Ran in 4K, and I picked it up, and Ran was sitting over there, and I had watched Princess Mononoke, and I thought, hmm, why not? Let's watch Ran <laughs> directly after <laughs> Princess Mononoke, and the comparison of Miyazaki to Kurosawa, I think, is apt because you see them drawing from different things. You know, he uh, Kurosawa's Ran is amazing if you've never seen it. I mean, it draws from King Lear, but it tells a very multifaceted story, and you're never bored. And the scale is so big and gigantic, but it's all focused around the characters. You don't really go anywhere where you're not watching these characters, and yet there are these giant battle scenes that are sort of just happening around them. And there's a beautiful marriage of battle scene and, and character development at the very same time. I do think Peter Jackson captured some of that. In, I love those first three Lord of the Rings movies. But even those films yeah. are sometimes overwhelmed by their special effects. And that never happens here. No. No, it doesn't. It, the characters are always front and center. Well, I think that's one of the great things about animation, especially you know, just the way that Miyazaki does it, is that because everything is kind of the same style nothing really feels out of place you know like true so like even like even when my favorite things that miyazaki does i'm like wow that's like the first thing the first time i've ever seen something like that was when there's like a really serious moment and there, and somebody's either talking or, or listening or thinking of something like their hair starts to move up <laughs> like, yes. I thought that was so cool because you could just feel like like the, the electricity in the air that's making their hair stand up. You know, like it's just it's like those things were. I feel like if you got CGI or real life actors, I just feel like it wouldn't translate as well. Yep. Yes, uh, I agree. And these these are these are, are as as three dimensional as anything you get. Everything, and that's absolutely true. Yeah. And I think I think another thing to to keep in mind, of course, is in animation, particularly the way that Miyazaki does it in, in, in these two films, uh, was still very hand drawn, trying to capture. And I watched a documentary uh, I mentioned; it was called "Kingdom of Dreams and Madness," and it was specifically about the development of uh, when, when the wind rises, like the at Studio Ghibli during that time. And you see Miyazaki, and you get the feeling that Miyazaki could just clone himself. <laughs> and that's the way he would work because I think his frustrations that come up sometimes at one point, he's like, well, if you can't find a way to do this, you better just quit. You know, <laughs> it's, it's to somebody at one point. And then the yeah, rest, he's, he I, seems I, like yeah. Santa sometimes. And then other times he seems like Krampus, you know, it's because yeah. uh, he can be kind of grumpy, but you get this idea that this is frustration because the vision is entirely there in his head and watching him try to work it out is very fascinating. And watching other people trying to work it out with him is, is even more fascinating and, and very cool to see and then to see the final results. I mean, the final results do kind of speak for themselves, but those little moments you're talking about, you're right, Chris, they, the, they're the earmarks of a, of a director who's able to have that control and then takes the time to, uh, to, to use that control to get these little moments. And, but think of it in a live action film, you know, if we wanted to capture, there's one scene that comes to mind just off the top of my head in Princess Mononoke, for example, and it happens where 
they are talking uh, the, with Ashitaka. He's in Iron Town. He's talking with the uh, all, most of the males. You know, the he, the females want him to come check that. Come on over and check <laughs> us out. And uh, the, he's he's talking with the guys that are kind of going on about you know their woes and everything. And he's rescued Ashitaka has rescued rescued a couple of the soldiers, the men that were knocked off the cliff, and they are back with him. And now everyone's kind of relaxing and drinking and they're having a conversation. And at one point, one of the guys is just up dancing in the background. (laughs) He's still got the bandage on. He's dancing. And the guy like looks over his shoulder and says, well, he's feeling no pain. And he goes right back to it. And you're thinking in an, I get that in a live action film, just, you know, get over there and dance in the background. It'll give us some feeling of, you know, uh, of realism. Right. And just have this guy in animation. You have to draw every one of those frames. You have to conceive of that idea of the guy just randomly dancing. It's an it's an organic moment that must have required an, an enormous amount of time and patience to, to put together. And it's a throwaway. You're right. And it's sort of a throwaway moment. But it adds to the film. How cool is that? That you're right. How how long did it take for, for someone to draw that? And it was probably Miyazaki. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. With all of the with all the frames he personally oversees or takes under his uh, uh, takes takes on himself. He's probably the one who drew that. That yeah, you have something of that going on. He didn't even have to include that. No. Let's be honest. He didn't need to include that. And most animated movies probably wouldn't include that. Even even very detailed ones. And it, what it does yeah. though is it gives you the sense that the movie and by extension the world extends beyond the frame of what you're seeing. That when you walk out of that room. You might be thinking, what are those people still doing? You know, what, what what's going on over in the ironworks right now? Or what's going on right. in the forest? Or, you know, they briefly introduced the apes and you're kind of curious about them and they're not in it a lot. But he shows he shows the different elements that are affected by this world. And I really like that. Uh, those, those kinds of scenes. They're in most of his work. Something I did not think fully grasp until I watched the one documentary is that he doesn't really write scripts. He does it all as storyboards. So he's yeah, just yeah. sitting there in the in the film in the documentary. He's sitting there painting all this stuff out, and then he's showing it to people. He does, and he, he says, "Why? Well, that's going to rate. That's going to hedge me in too much. I, I want to start with the images and see where the images take me." And so he talks about these different films, beginning from different images. I mentioned before we started casting tonight that a friend of mine who lived in Japan for a while, who went to the Ghibli Museum, had brought me back some things, and one of those is a really cool coffee table book. You can actually purchase it online. But it's uh, Princess Mononoke, the first story. And it shows where this, the genesis of the idea began with Miyazaki back in the 80s. And it was very different then. This, the story in the book is much more representative of a Beauty and the Beast story with a samurai sort of being encountering this wild beast, this kind of cat-like creature. It's almost more like a Totoro. And then it, you know, in exchange for its help, uh, he has to bring his, uh, his daughter to it. And the, the story is... Very similar, but then it goes off in these different directions. And you can see the genesis of what becomes this film, but it's so very different. You just think of all the ideas and, and concepts that are floating around in his head here. But the way he brings them together here, I think it's one of the best high fantasy movies I've ever seen. Yep. Yeah, well, I agree 100%. So did anyone else have anything else on uh, on Princess Mononoke? No, I think uh, I think we covered yeah. it. Yeah, I think we did. Uh, I think we did this uh, did this movie justice, and it is um, an amazing film, and it's one that I think everybody should should check out. I don't think there's a Miyazaki 
even if I think of like the the um the uh the like like a bottom sort of line Miyazaki film. Um, like I remember the wind rises is one that I thought, well, it didn't have quite what Ponyo had or what spirited away had, but even it is amazing. Yeah. And I think wind rises is one you have, I had the benefit. I'd seen it at a screening and then they sent me a screener. And so I'd seen it a few times. That's the one that kind of grows on you. It's very real world. It has no fantasy elements in it, so to speak. But, uh, again, attention to details, fantastic in it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that that's what Miyazaki is all about and, and building these films with multifaceted characters. Um, and I'll say for anyone who's interested, uh, the, the Disney's put out some really great Blu-rays of these films uh, and they have yes. the Japanese language version, which I, to me is always usually the preferred way to see it. I did rewatch Mononoke, though, however, in this English dub because it's really good. It's very expressive uh, and it's the way I first yeah. saw the film. And so there is a certain nostalgia there for it. But I, and they do a great yeah. job. I will say Disney and it was John Lasseter. Yeah. John Lasseter of Pixar is a, he almost worships Miyazaki. <laughs> you know, he is such a big Miyazaki fan and, you know, he was tied in with Disney with Pixar initially through that connection. And then later, obviously now he's sort of running things or, or Pixar is sort of running things with, with uh, Disney animation um that he's the one you always got the feeling that he's the one who brought Miyazaki to Disney yes and I think I think that's fair and but they do a good job every single one of them the 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 uh, Kiki's delivery service with uh, Kirsten Dunst and um oh god um uh, Phil Hartman yeah great great voice work you know and and you got it in Spirited Away and in Princess Mononoke, all of these films, they do it justice. Yeah. Where you know they're paying homage to Miyazaki's vision. And in two thousand, they went back and redid a lot of his, the older ones. Nausicaa. You can listen to Nausicaa now, and you hear Patrick Stewart's yes. voice. Patrick yeah. Stewart's there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Porco Rosa, Michael Keaton, right. and 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 Porco Rosa's <laughs> one. It's we'll have to cover that one. That's an excellent film it's a really good it movie is. i love parker Rocha. yeah it's easy to overlook yeah. it i think uh because it isn't quite on the same level of, of, of the, the the fantasy elements well it's also like the ones with like you're yeah. saying we should do like a porco rosso and castle in the sky next yeah because there are two miyazaki films that don't get the credit they deserve and and they come coming back and allowing the, to to go back and do these voiceovers and and these narrations so i just want to say if you have hbo max right now they have uh, they have on the tab there. There's a whole Miyazaki collection there, and they have all and a Studio Ghibli actually. So there's other Studio Ghibli films there, and there are some there that are very much worth seeing. Whispers of the Heart is there. When Marnie, when Marnie, yeah, I think when Marnie was, was there is is also there. Is a really yeah. strong one. Um, uh, print the the the, the, the Tale of the Princess Cayuga. Yeah, and which is a un- very unique entry. Yes, for them. Yes, Grave of the Fireflies. Um, yes, and it, not yes, very very sad. Oh uh, my god, that's like you, you almost want to open a. It's like you 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 want to if if we ever do an episode, Nathan, where we said 
uh, we we call it like uh, opening a vein. <laughs> by the time we we, we do we do uh, the, the grave of the fireflies and the plague dolls. Uh, we, I was just talking to Karen um, the other day, <laughs> Karen Wagner, and we were talking about the uh, animation. She was talking about uh, Watership Down, and I said, "Well, we should have you on." Is Watership Down the plague dogs? And she's like, "Oh, what is the plague dogs?" And I was like, "Maybe no, not for you, Karen." Let me tell you, the, the end of the end of the by the end of the plague dogs. You you just want to you just want to yes. you just want to open a vein because you're so depressed. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah, we but we should they're, they're good movies. They're and I think oh yeah, what's yeah. impressive about this is and, and about those films too. This is moving animation out of it's just for kids, and yet some of these movies, if you've got the right kid and, and the kids prepared, they're good for kids. They're you know I people talk about gateway films. I was watching uh, the other movie I watched around the same time I was watching Spirit Away was Pan's Labyrinth, which is obviously a much darker film than that. Oh, no, but that it scared yeah. me as a kid. Yeah, but it's oh my god. And I I'm not showing Pan's Labyrinth to my children. Uh, I like rewatching it. Knows that you know there's someone's head is caved in in the like first few scenes, but it dawns on me. We always talk about gateway movies that you know, which is really coming from the term of gateway drugs. So I don't know how, how good that is. You're talking about what's a gateway film for a kid to get them addicted to this. But uh, but it dawns on me that, you know, Del Toro, for example, makes not gateway movies because they're too dark for children, but they're more like bridges. They're bridges that when you're when you are growing up and you're at the point that you're ready for it, you can cross. It's a great crossing over into sort of more adult films. With those, uh, and then yeah. vice versa. If you're on the side of you're a grown up adult, it's crossing back over into the sensibilities that that you remember as a child. And Miyazaki, at a level that's actually a little more family friendly, is doing the same thing. I don't think of his films as gateways; they're bridges. You can walk over, and it's a great transition, particularly if you've got a parent kind of walking with you to ideas and concepts that are a little bit more mature, but not that mature. And then, as an adult. They kind of they feel like a renewal of your childhood watching these movies. Yeah, and giving you something more. Yeah, you know, something you might not have seen as a child, or you might not have noticed as a child. Yeah, I think that's a great segue to Spirited Away. Did you want to open that one up, Dave? All right, Spirited Away, uh, Miyazaki's film from uh, 2001, released here in the states in 2002, and I'm going to IMDb for the synopsis. Uh, Chihiro and her parents are moving to a small Japanese town in the countryside, much to Chihiro's dismay. On the way to their new home, Chihiro's father makes a wrong turn and drives down a lonely one-lane road, which dead ends in front of a tunnel. Her parents decide to stop the car and explore the area. They go through the tunnel and find an abandoned amusement park on the other side with its own little town. When her parents see a restaurant with great smelling food but no staff, they decide to eat and pay later. However, Chihiro refuses to eat and decides to explore the theme park a bit more. She meets a boy named Haku, who tells her that Chihiro and her parents are in danger and they must leave immediately. She runs to the restaurant and finds that her parents have turned into pigs. In addition, the theme park turns out to be a town inhabited by demons, spirits, and evil gods. At the center of the town is a bathhouse... Um, where these creatures go to relax. The owner of the bathhouse is the evil witch, Yubaba, who is intent on keeping all trespassers as captive workers, including Chihiro. Chihiro must rely on Haku to save her parents in hopes of returning to their world. You know what? It was going really well there to that last sentence. 
That last sentence, it kind of fell apart a little bit. Shahira must rely on Haku to save her parents. No, that's not really. No. no. And even Evil Witch is not entirely correct either. Exactly. Evil Witch is not entirely correct either. Capitalist, um, maybe. But... <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, boy, it's funny. This synopsis was great for the first 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and then it gives you nothing for the last hour and 50 minutes. <laughs> Right. What it wrote was essentially what the American ending would have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, as I said before, this is one of my all-time 10, this is one of my top 10 favorite movies, Spirited Away. And what I love about it is, well, first off, you get the character of Chihiro. This young girl, she's sitting in that car as the movie opens, and you don't really like her because she's just kind of miserable. She's not happy. They're moving away. She's complaining all the time. She's, she doesn't like going to this new town. Uh, she's giving her parents a hard time. Her parents want to explore. She's like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not getting out of the car. So they start walking through the tunnel. She's like, hey, wait for me. Like she, like she was trying to control the situation and wasn't able to do it. And even when she first get, what happens is she becomes indoctrinated into this world. Her parents are out of the picture. Um, they get, as, as I said, they, they get trans, they get transformed into pigs as they're eating this food. So all of a sudden she hears on her own. And I think some of the great scenes with her are when she's, uh, when Haku takes her to the, to the bathhouse and says, you have to go down, you know, um, uh, you have to, you have to say you want a job. You can't let them talk you out of wanting a job in this movie. You know, whatever happens, you know, and who was it? It was, oh, God, the guy who um, in the American uh, version was voiced by David Ogden Stiers. Oh, down in the, yes, down in the. Um, Kamaji. Yeah, Kamaji. Kamaji. He's, the he guy has who, all these arms. He's the one who he actually has, runs yeah, the water. Yeah. Almost like a human spider. Yeah. Yes. Is what he reminded me of. That he says, just keep saying, you want a job, you want a job, you want a job, and you'll eventually get a job. You know, you just have to be demanding about it. But what's great is in those scenes where she's working, she's behind. You get the feeling that this, this girl has been spoiled throughout her life. She's a spoiled little girl and she's not used to doing anything for herself. She's not used to working, but seeing her develop into this character who learns like these, these, these qualities that she becomes stronger as the movie goes on is one of the strengths. The character of Chihiro is one of the strengths. Voiced by Davey, uh, in the U.S. version, Davey Chase. Yeah, Davey Chase, yeah. Who... Davey Chase, who, for me, will be the little girl from The Ring. Yes. And how freaking creepy is that? She's the, she's the little girl from The Ring. She's Lilo. She's the little girl she's from The Lilo Ring. She's Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. She's uh, Samantha Darko. Right, she's Samantha <laughs> Darko from Donnie Darko. That's another one I remember. Yeah. But The Ring. The if ring. You want to Samara. Look at two, two, <laughs> Samara. You want to look at two polar opposites. <laughs> you get your hero in Samara. <laughs> well, yeah. My I had showed my kids the ring. You know, these movies came out the same month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were this, they were. Because I saw the ring about a month after I yeah. saw Bearded Away. And two very different reactions <laughs> yes yeah to those two movies I, my daughter know? was creeped out when she realized that Chihiro was voiced by samara <laughs> yeah i that that's yeah. that's that's something pretty severe um but again you get the miyazaki strength 
even like you said, when you said about the evil witch, Yubaba, she's not evil through the whole movie. There's that great scene where um, Chihiro helps the, the, um, the, the, uh, the water spirit that everyone thinks is the stink God or whatever, coming down the bridge and like the, the odor it's giving off. And then it turns out that it's not what everybody thought that she is like very thankful that you hear her. She's like, Oh, thank you so much. You did a great job. Because of the money. Yeah. Capitalism. The money. Yeah. Because of the capitalism. <laughs> like yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, of course, then within what twelve hours, she wants to she wants to kick your hero's ass for letting that one for letting no face into yeah. the into, no no face no which, face in, into the bathhouse. Yeah, I love no face. Uh, he's my favorite. Yeah, no face is a very interesting character because he's just sad and lonely. But he's also the most nightmarish thing by far, in oh, my yeah. opinion. In, the, in, in that movie, film, that's is. where it when that was happening. And I don't. If anyone has seen the movie, I don't even want to necessarily say what happens when that is happening and it's on screen. You're like, this movie has taken a turn. Yeah. I just remember thinking, this has gone off the rails. And my kids, like, what is happening? Because it's almost we get a feeling everything's going to be okay, but it's that it feels like that recklessness of a dream where we just went into horror territory, very yeah. intense horror territory. When there's a scene of something chasing her, and it's like. This is like more terrifying than say the relic or you know some movie yeah. with a giant monster right. and and what's happening on screen like if you were to just turn that on TV you would say kids nope you're not watching this <laughs> and you would turn yeah. it back off and yet where the no face character where he goes he is he I agree he, he's such a neat character because a he doesn't really speak and uh, his interactions with Chihiro are very interesting and he's also a good uh, way she deals with him is maybe one of the best indicators that she's growing as a person. Yeah. You know, exactly. That's what's so cool about this. This world they create is so fascinating and strange and yet it's cool. And I think maybe the del Toro comparison is apt is because Miyazaki is always, he has three or four little themes. He always touches upon and they're not that different from the themes in del Toro's. It's, it's like you said, it's always dichotomy, Chris. It's, it's loyalty or, 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 you know, devotion versus love, you know, yeah. or nature versus man, a man versus himself. And there, the scene that you mentioned, uh, Dave, I just thought was so cool that they take this concept of this bathhouse and you, they make a scene that's as exciting and crazy and weird as the battles in Princess Mononoke, maybe more so. And it's just about them trying to give this giant thing a bath. You know, <laughs> that's all that's right. actually happening. But then What's happening in the story is exactly the same as the opening of Princess Mononoke. This thing, this this god of nature has been infected and is yeah. something else it was never intended to be. And now they have to fix it. Yeah. And it's one of the themes with Miyazaki. It's 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 man versus nature. And he's been polluted. This but is it's a, not is like the only thing. You, you know, it's something I always thought is kind of cheesy as a critic. You'll hear people say, the generosity of this filmmaker. And I'm like, yeah, come on now. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but there, it, it, not that it's not always true, but it's just sort of, it just feels kind of like a hokey thing to say. And yeah. yet there is a certain kind of generous spirit to the film in the sense that this movie keeps piling things on when you think it could just stop. I mean, because some of these storylines, it could be frustrating in some ways. I think that's why it appeals to children is it doesn't feel hemmed in by any one plot. I mean, Eventually, we learn that that uh, Ubaba's got a, a, a 
like a twin sister yeah. that yeah. we didn't know anything about. Right. And there's a giant baby. <laughs> and, and these things don't feel the need to have to be paid off by very specific plot points. So I don't feel the need to have an entire, uh, you know, origin movie about the three floating heads or about the baby <laughs> or anything going on. Or and the yet, bird that looks like right, uh, yeah. Yubaba. Well, these things, <laughs> even even what's going on, right? Uh, with with all of these characters, they have their own agency. Uh, even the little characters that show up both these movies, you have the uh, Okadama in Princess Mononoke. Those little forest spirits with the heads clack around. That's a kind of cute and creepy at the same time. <laughs> right. And then this film, you have the little soot, the little soot spirits that they're down. Uh, with Kamaji, you know, and they they right. kind of move in and out, and they carry and I think the tiles. What's really, what's really funny is when when you see Chihiro, uh, or uh, what should be what what is what's the other name she goes by in this uh, San? What what is it that uh, the name that she ends up? Uh, San. San. Yeah. She it. San to... was San was Princess Mononoke. Yeah. San. San. Yeah. San. San. But it's Chihiro. When she ends up um, with the one that quite can't quite carry yeah. that that uh, that cold of the fire, and then you realize, oh, all these suit things are like lazy as shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that they're just being forced. All of a sudden, they realize, hey, I don't have to do this. Yeah, all I got to do is pretend like I can't carry it, and I don't have to. They do all this start anymore. dropping it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Again, the little details that that go into it, but it doesn't. It's got the little details, but it doesn't feel the need to over-explain itself. And I think that's kind of what I why I love it. And I actually like this movie even better than Princess Mononoke. It's a different yeah. kind of movie. But I think this is his masterpiece, personally. I, I agree. And I I think I sent you guys the opening on the um on the yeah, Blu-ray yeah. that I it was on the DVD as well of John Lasseter. And I love how he starts it off where he says, Hi, I'm John Lasseter from Pixar Studios. You are lucky. You are about to watch Spirited Away. He talks about his experiences with Spirited Away, uh, how he first saw it over in Japan, and how he considers it Miyazaki's masterpiece. I think it brings together all of the, all of what makes a great Miyazaki movie. The strong uh, central character, a young girl, the um, you know the the man versus nature the mythology that plays into all of his films and just the immense amount of imagination that go into his movies. These are not films where you can predict what's going to happen. Even in, even in Mononoke, all of these movies, you know, when you watch a Disney movie, okay, good's going to win out versus evil. <laughs> That's just the way it happens. Yeah. When you're watching Princess Mononoke, you don't know that that lead character is not going to die from his um, encounter no. with that poor demon. <laughs> yeah. You don't know that how that movie is going to end and you don't know how spirited away is going to end. You no, just you don't because the characters have grown to a point. Can they go back to the life from the beginning? Her whole goal is to get her parents back and get back to her original life, but she's grown. She's become a different person in that time is that going to be, continue to be her goal just to go off of that like near the end of uh spirit away when she's walking away even haku was like don't look back you know like you right. can't look back that's your past you can't go back to that just keep looking forward right 
Yeah, and and but the thing is, you know, you almost get the feeling like she wants to look back. Oh yeah, because this has changed her life in a way that she never anticipated, um, and has made her a completely different person. Um, and you almost want to see added scenes with the parents where they realize that in her, where they see that she's changed. You don't get quite enough of that. Well, that yeah, where they yeah, learn yeah. that maybe you shouldn't be a hog and eat at the buffet. Or, and yeah, right. And eat, eat at the buffet. I feel like she's and become then, more then, mature yeah. than her parents at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> yes, exactly. The parents are the parents at the beginning. By the end of it, she's eclipsed the parents. Oh, yeah. Well, nothing's happened for them. Nothing has changed. They're, right. They're in the, you know, what, what happened? Right. They're, they're still the same people, whereas she's a completely different person by the end of this movie. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It is, you know, again, another thing that people like say, well, this movie is magical, but it truly is in a way that I think the experience of watching it is above and beyond the technical elements, even even as fascinating as they are. A lot of times, and Dave, I know you know this, that Chris, you probably know this too, is like you watch a movie, particularly when you watch try to watch something from a critical perspective, you end up sort of trying to analyze it based on its parts, you know, and then you try to look at those parts and decide if they match up to a whole. And that's what you t- that's what I typically used to do with an average movie. But I think when you get something really special, it stops being a movie. You know, it becomes this experience, it becomes this thing that you don't even quite know what to say or how to process it because you don't look at you're not looking at it as a factory sum of its parts. You're looking at it as this organic thing that is sort of there in front of you now. And I don't think all movies do that. I mean, I think a handful of movies do that if you're right. being honest. But I think this is one of those movies. No, I I agree 100%. I think it is. And but it's funny, you know, the, some of the things that stuck with me that when I was watching this in the theater back in 2002 and I'm immersed in it like my kids were. I'm loving it. I'm loving everything about it. But one of the things that really stuck with me, the two things I should say, one is and you see this in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Castle in the Sky and obviously Kiki's Livery Service. When his characters, when Miyazaki's characters take the flight, when they're flying, there's a vibrancy about it. There's something strong when his characters are flying. And you get that in this movie. And you get it even to a degree in some of his later films. Something about Miyazaki in flight, I think, is where he really builds this energy. But aside from that, after everything that happened in that bathhouse, everything that went down, even with no face... The moment when they're on that train. Yes. And they're going down and there's just quiet. There's nothing happening. You get that soft music playing. And these characters just sort of sitting there. You know they're sort of reflecting in their mind everything that transpired. And you have Chihiro uh, there. And you have No Face there. And you have these other two little characters. I don't want to give too much away. I want people to see the movie. But there's that that everything that happened, all this craziness that happened at the bathhouse on that train, there's silence. There's just quiet things happening, you know, just sort of moving along and the characters sort of being reflective. That's also the magic of Miyazaki and the sun going down and you see this, the, the scenery in the outside of it that now he's quieting things down and yet you're still in the movie. That to right. me, when I saw that on the big screen, I'm like, wow, that's really something that he was able to just bring us back to this moment, this quiet moment of being on the on this train 
as Jahira is going out to to meet, um, you know, Yubaba's twin sister. Yeah, and I think that 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 element of having the kind of more gentle, meditative moments and those kind of you know when the soundtrack where the story is able to slow down a little bit. That's what's really cool about most of Studio Ghibli's movies, particularly Miyazaki's films. You have that in Spirited Away, the moments uh, where he's riding you cool after he's left the village. You know, you have these moments of just watching him sort of ride across the countryside. And the, again, not necessarily moments that you would normally pause for. And it's where they're paused. Like when you mentioned the train ride when they go to see basically Yubaba's sister, the story's not over yet. Nothing has been right. resolved at Nothing's that point. Nothing's been resolved, no. But they're quiet and they're yeah. just sort of living in the moment. And I think that's know? the best scene of the film is that yeah. train ride. It's the most it's the most dreamlike, although the whole film feels like a dream. Right. And you have that character there. What What's really something, though, is like I said, they're not one note. No faces there. You know everything that's just gone down with this character. And he's back to what he was at the beginning. And he's sitting there, you know, just sort of meek. And he's part of that whole sort of uh, reflective moment. I don't know. I absolutely love, for me, as much as I love every aspect of this movie, there's something about that train ride yeah, that just really resonates with me where it's like, okay, we brought it all back to a center and now we're going to sort of take it um, from here and we're going to see where it resolves. It's not one emotion either. It's lonely. It has a certain melancholy. And the music is very sort of soft. Like you're saying, melancholic. It it just, it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Yeah. We could talk probably for hours about both of these films. And yet there are movies that are really, I think, if you take any of our recommendations, if you haven't seen these movies, see them. They're amazing. I think that uh, if you're a parent and you want to show them the kids, I think, I think, uh, Spirited Away is more like it has a few nightmare images in it, but I'd say that's more of a PG film. Uh, Princess Monoki is pretty firmly in the PG 13, um, although I don't think that either one of them is necessarily going to scar a child who isn't extremely <laughs> no, sensitive. No, I don't, I don't think so. Right. Um, I don't think, I mean, even, even with the violence in Princess Mononoke, it, it's, 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 it's quick. It's not throughout the whole yeah. movie. If you have kids who can handle Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a fair way to say it. Or or the Marvel pictures, you know, the Marvel films. So um, I, I guess we had ratings on these. Did you have anything else, uh, Chris, you wanted to add? Um, well, I, I guess the only thing that I could really add, which you guys have already really touched upon, um, is, uh, well, one, the music, I think, is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, was it Joe Hisashi, yeah. I think, who yeah, uses uh-huh. a lot of it? Fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, just like the pacing of it. I feel like, I feel like, especially, you know, as an animation student and anybody out there that's looking into movies or wanting to get into film or anything like that, uh, definitely check out these movies just for, you know, like pacing or, you know, just these little details to look out for that would make such an interesting and intriguing, you know, movie that people would actually want to watch and, and not just watch, but watch over and over again, you know? Yep. Yep. Agreed. hundred um, percent. I think, I, I think we know where we all probably come down, but her final ratings on this out of 10, um, let's start with you, Chris, for both of these movies for princess Mononoke and for spirited away. Oh gosh. I think for Mononoke, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. 
Um, okay. It was actually the second movie I saw, so it has a special place in my heart. And uh, Spirit Away, I got to give it a 10 out of 10. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm 10 out of 10 on both of these. Uh, I love. I think there are things I like about them for different reasons, but I think the kinds of fantasy that they are, again, one being more of a sort of uh, epic fantasy and another being in that sort of Alice in Wonderland dream world fantasy, I think they're the very tip top of that in, in terms of on film, you know, uh, and, and their imagination rivals books that I've read. So for me, 10 out of 10 on both mm. of these. Dave, how about you? I'm. I think I'm right there with Chris. I think I'm going to go nine out of ten on Princess Mononoke, and definitely ten out of ten on Spirited Away. It is a. It is like I said, one of my ten all-time favorite movies. Um, one of those films that only gets stronger every time I see it. You see something a little different in it. Uh, but that's Miyazaki. Every you know you 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 need to see Miyazaki's movies more than once. I don't think you can, you can grasp everything that's going on all of the nuances, all of the little asides, all of the minor characters, even the minor characters, you know, take on a a different resonance when you see them again. His movies are some that, you know, it's almost like David Lynch is a, is a, is a filmmaker whose movies you have to see more than once. I put Miyazaki there as well for two different reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I I, I think I like experiences as well. It's the idea that you can't get all of this in a single sitting. Terry Gilliam movies, Kind of and like Terry Gilliam's too. another yeah. one, yeah, definitely. And uh, and I, I I I appreciate that because so often I'll finish a movie and I'm kind of done, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that, uh, that's when you know you have a work of art as opposed to just someone telling a story. Yeah, you have a, yeah. you have something that is a work of art that you can watch it again and come away with something a little different than the first time you saw it. And I think that's the kind of thing here about Miyazaki is he's got he's kind of got it in every area. He's got. There's, there are filmmakers out there who are great storytellers. They not, might not be strong at great at world building, mm. but he's a great artist. Yep. He's a great world builder and he's a great storyteller. Yeah. And I think those things all come together and he, and he really kind of feels his characters. And I think that that is, that's what makes these movies as special as they are. I think they're both uh, brilliant in their own ways. And I, or, and, and they're not the only ones we recommend. They're just, we couldn't talk about all of them because there's kind of just too much to say be here for days. but yeah, yeah, I, yeah i don't know that there's a single miyazaki movie that i've seen that didn't have something special about it no i like all, all of his directed films i like all of yes. them and i like yeah. a good number of uh of um studio ghibli's movies i will say you know his son goro miyazaki has made a few uh he kind of seems to be in the shadow of his father and that would be kind of expected uh i will say i have not really enjoyed many of the movies that he's made uh, he no. was actually they studio ghibli did their first 3d animated movie which i reviewed on on this podcast a few months ago uh earring and the witch and i actually just didn't care for it at all like i right. i it, a lot of the it's the antithesis i think of a lot of the things we've talked about in these two movies which is a shame but and it is a shame because you got the feeling that miyazaki was almost looking to maybe turn over the reins or something yeah. you know with every like i said he's been talking about retirement from the late 90s and i think we want yeah. to get into these documentaries we can get into that a little bit more nathan with these documentaries um that, that, that you want to bring up but um miyazaki he just can't retire and no, it's like, no. and, then, and he, I think he hasn't. just accept that he hasn't. You sent me an article today from the New York Times, yeah, saying Miyazaki one more time out and then he's done. Yeah, no, he's not. 
Yeah, well, it's, he it's had a weird happen. quote related to this film that he's working on, and he's right. He's he's and it's it's he's been it's in the works for a bit, so it's probably going to be, uh, you know, it was, it was actually supposed to already come out, I think, originally, and then different things have held it up. But he's in the directing reins again. It's like you said, uh, Dave. He can't just sit and drink his tea. And no, uh, that's the thing, though. One of the documentaries you mentioned, Never Ending Man. Yeah. I watched that movie, and one of the things you get from it is you get his love of of the art. You get his drive. I mean, there is a point where he says to one of his like employees, "Well, if if you're not, you know, if you can't do it, get the hell out." Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Like he, he's a he's a tough guy. He's like, if you can't solve this, for. you might as well quit. I was like, yeah, oh my exactly, goodness. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's he's he blazed it out there. He says it so but, nonchalantly. <laughs> yeah, but I remember him going to meetings when he was talking about like um, computer animation and all the different things that he's doing in this. When he's not working, he's sitting in his kitchen drinking tea. That's all he's doing. Each time that he's not associating with the movie and never ending man. That's what I took away from that documentary is that he's just sitting down in his kitchen, drinking tea. Every other part of the movie, he's somehow connected, you know, and the the damn saddest damn thing is that when he retired, studio Ghibli disbanded and everyone went somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so even if there's a studio Ghibli now, it's going to be different people. You know, and you get the feeling they had a great group there for all of these films that when he finally did his retirement after uh, The Wind Rises, I guess, was was the last one um, that he finally just said, OK, that's it. We're done. And, they, and Stuart Ghibli lasted a little bit longer than that. I mean, that was the last one he directed. Yeah. But they released, you know, uh, when Marnie was there and um, or when Marnie was here and um, or The Tale of Princess Cayuga. Uh, so they had other movies that they came out with, but when Miyazaki was done, that's the end of Studio Ghibli. Like we were saying, he was Studio Ghibli. Yeah, no doubt about it. He was the one, and it disbanded. And you see that shot in this documentary of like the empty offices, yeah, of Studio Ghibli, and you think, damn. You know, Miyazaki, why didn't you just realize you can't retire? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I think he maybe has figured that out. <laughs> I think he must have. But even with this newest one, he's saying, this is it, and then I'm done. Well, he had a weird quote. Like, I don't know if it's weird, but it, you know, it struck me. It's not, it's certainly not something you would uh, um, necessarily associate with a, with someone normally saying. Is he goes, why? I'm making one more. This one's for my grandson because I'm not going to be around much longer, but this movie will endure past me. Basically, it's like, I'll be dead soon, and here's a movie for my my grandson. That's the thing I think of um, with Miyazaki. He's getting up there. Yeah, how old is he? You know, and you think... 80. 80, wow. And you think, yeah, he's not going to be around much longer. But I was thinking about that, you know. Yeah, you're right, because I was thinking about Kurosawa, watching Ran. That Kurosawa, that movie, how big it is, and he made it at 75. Yeah, and he made more. I mean, Ram was early 80s. Ram, Ram was 85. He did Kejimusha in like 81, I think, 80, thereabouts, 80. And then he did Ran, and he made three more movies. Yeah, and they were good. What was the yeah. one he did? Oh, God, the one he did about um, uh, the bomb in, Naga- was it Nagasaki? Oh, God, what was that movie called? Oh, he had a couple of dreams is one of my favorites. That he dreams does. is very a good surreal. one. Dreams is a really um, good one, but this is one from like the, it had, it had Richard Gere in it. 
the one oh, I'm really? thinking about. Oh God, I even I think I even did it as one of yeah, my it, um, the other ones he did. He did uh, Rhapsody in August. Rhapsody in August. Yeah, that's, that's the, the one movie. I'm thinking about. That's the one about um, the grandmother whose brother had gone to Hawaii in America, yep. and she, he wanted her to visit him before he passed away, but she didn't want to do it because her husband died in the bombing. I want to say Nagasaki. I don't think it was Hiroshima, but I think it was Nagasaki. It's been a while since I've seen this. Amadeo yeah. was his last movie that he made. Um, but he, like uh, Matadeo in 93 was his last. And then he passed in 98, at 88. Right. Uh, but even Kurosawa, you know, he had a period of time before, because when he came back in the 80s, at that point in his 70s, People notice he say he's a different guy. He's much more laid back. And before that, I mean, there's a point where he like just disheartened with things are going on, attempted suicide. Uh, uh, Kurosawa did, and oh, weird wow. to think about that, and then think about some of those movies he wouldn't have gotten. And uh, and Dave, they, 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 I don't know if you ever saw the the uh, Russian film that he made, the Russian American kind of a. Uh, um, not American, excuse me, the Russian Japanese film that, you know, it was a kind of merger, Soviet and uh, Japan working together to make this film. And it's a really good movie, too. Uh, he, he did the script for Runaway Train with John Voight. Oh, wow. Did he really? So, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of different things. See, uh, that I didn't know. I did not know that he did the script for Runaway Train. That's really cool. It seems like work is sort of, you know, there's this aspiration that this is what we are, a sum of our work, in a sense. Right. You know? I think for good and bad. and For, for a certain generation yes. in Japan. Yes. For and, a certain generation in Japan, that's definitely and true. These and guys are from. Of that generation. Right. They're yeah. from that generation. Uh, I Oh, so, so the movie was based on original screenplay by Akira Kurosawa. Okay. And so, right. for Runaway Train. So, he was involved in Runaway nice. Train. That's and, really cool. Uh, the interesting thing is that, and, and I saw a, a documentary, you probably saw too, Dave, called Jiro, uh, uh, was it Jiro Dreams of Sushi? No, or, I, I something. So that. That a guy who, about, yeah. yeah, it's a documentary about a, a, a man who owns a, a sushi bar in Japan that is so like, well-known and it's such clout that i mean i can't remember the price of a single piece of sushi but it's like it's like a spiritual sojourn just to go there and eat a piece of sushi and this guy has like the highest restaurant rating you could possibly have he's achieved like the three star you know like height but you know i think ebert said what the tragedy is that there is no fourth star for him to achieve you know right. that there's this sense that what else is there what more can i do and you see that i think in some of these arts but that driven aspect that makes them, you know, it's hard to understand them also explains, I think why these films are, there's a, you know, you look at some of these movies and you're, you're amazed that, that, that they're made the way they are, that they are so, uh, they're so big and yet they're yeah. also so personal. Like that yes. takes a lot, yes. that takes a drive that is maybe beyond the natural. <laughs> it is. To and, achieve. Then, and then you're thinking of the never ending man. He's making that caterpillar short film. Yeah. And obsessing over the way the caterpillar is coming out of the cocoon with the way it's rolling. Is it rolling right? Is its body moving properly? <laughs> is it looking the way it should look and just obsessing over that? And it's funny because then you watch that and you juxtapose it with those earlier scenes of him sitting in his kitchen drinking tea. 
And it's that moment when you realize this guy just, he shouldn't, he, he can't retire. He can't give it up. You know, and the big joke was, yeah, from, from Princess Mononoke on every single movie he made. How many did he make after Princess Mononoke? I think it's five um, movies were always his last. <laughs> Spirited Away was his last. And then Howl's Moving Castle was his last. There were four, I think. There was Howl's Moving, unless you count this new one, um, How Do You Live? Well, after Princess yeah. Mononoke, it was Spirited Away. It was Howl's Moving Castle. It was Ponyo. And, and the then Wind Rises. Wind Rises. Yeah, yeah, four. Every single one of them, I'm retiring. That's it. I'm done. And then he stopped making movies and then he started producing or behind the scenes. I think when Marnie was was here was the last what was the first Studio Ghibli movie that did not have Miyazaki's name in the credits somewhere as producer, as whatever. That was the first one. And it's also one of the last that they released for Studio Ghibli. Yeah, yeah. If you and think about it, that was the first one where he sort of stepped away and did nothing for it. Um, and Takahata, the other, was kind of the other uh, yeah, guy. Yeah, the other and one. You, yeah. And you see, when you watch the, the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, you can see the kind of friendly rivalry between the two of them. And they were both uh, kind of preparing their last films, in a sense, you know, that for... For Takahata, it was going to be the tale of the woodcutter, the the uh, one you just mentioned, Kagawa, Princess Kagawa, and that one. And then for Miyazaki, the wind rises, and so that was kind of like, like you said, between the two of them, I think they were Studio Ghibli. Certainly yeah. Miyazaki to a greater extent, but Takahata did Grave of the Fireflies and some of these other yes. films that we we're talking about. Now, and uh, you know, if you're looking at somebody who's going to be like, I want to also mention on this the next Miyazaki. I always would go back to, and we've talked about this, um, I think, with, uh, it's uh, Makoto uh, Shinkai. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who did Weathering With You and Your Name. Yeah, our second episode. Your Name Especially. Yeah, Your Name Especially, I think, is a masterpiece. I love Your Name. I think that's a great movie because of the way he develops the story. He is somebody who I could see. Um, being like the next Miyazaki. Yeah, it would have been Satoshi. Kon. It would have been, but he said it would have been, but gone. he's passed away. He he yeah. passed away very young, unfortunately. And he did. Uh, actually, Chris and I went and saw um, Tokyo Godfathers yeah. on the big screen. We'll have to do a Satoshi Kon episode. I, I think uh, we do. I think we do because he's done some great movies. Yeah, um, I took my kids to the big uh, kind of revival theater down here, the center, to see uh, Paprika, <laughs> which oh, is one Paprika's- of my favorites. Yeah, Paprika is a great one. Um, Perfect Blue, yeah. which I saw is really good. The only one I haven't seen is Millennium Actress, and I have it on Blu-ray. I want to see Millennium Actress. I haven't it's seen it It's good too, but yeah, they're they're all great movies. And uh, I uh, and he yeah, he was only forty six. It was pancreatic yeah, cancer. It was real it sad. Was, it's it's really sad. It's a shame because he really did some great work. Um. So, uh, but but so for me, Makoto Shinkai. Yeah. There's Absolutely. something very strong about him and something very um, with the way he builds his stories, the fantasy he brings into them um, and the way that he makes his the, the way that he develops his characters, I think, is very much like Miyazaki, not the same as Miyazaki. But on a level of Miyazaki, the scope, the personal, did yes. it, they feel yes. like novels? I think that's the, you know the experience of reading a book. As much as I love film, and I was a critic and stuff for a while, you know, books are my kind of like first love. And anytime I get a film 
that feels like an experience that challenges my imagination the same way that a book does. I, I'm always impressed by that. And I think that's what we're talking about here. And that's what you kind of need for anime. When you have the animation and the ability to do show anybody anything, it's always cool when a person chooses to show us things we've never thought of before, but in a way that makes sense to us. And I think that's watching the guy eat the hamburger in the Shinkei movie, watching Miyazaki bother to give that caterpillar 32 rolls versus 20 right, rolls or right, whatever, right. you know. <laughs> right. So Exactly. It's, it's that, le- that level of dedication that, that, you know, as you're watching, you're thinking, oh, nobody's going to notice that. But then you watch the movie and you go, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, you know, you do kind of notice. And it. for anyone who wants to see those documentaries, the two that we mentioned, uh, The Neverending Man and Kingdoms of Dreams and Madness, they're both on HBO Max right now. They're right, again, under that tab of Studio Ghibli. You have a lot of the Studio Ghibli movies, uh, and you have those two documentaries, and uh, and, and they're all good. I'd say, you know, you watch a Pompoco with the kids, be where the raccoons do beat people with their testicles. But <laughs> I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Uh, if you're into that. Other, yeah, yeah, you know what? Uh, it's a Japanese thing. It's uh, the 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 um, tanuki, the raccoon shapeshifters that are in that story, actually have been known to transform their testicles into various things. So it's part wow. of this part of the mythology. You can't mess with mythology. <laughs> Japan right? have like a so, whole park dedicated to that. Probably it sounds about right. I think they have some <laughs> hotels dedicated to it too, but it's different different deal. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Chris, it's been a ton of fun having you on. Um, Thank you. If you're up for it, I would love to have you on again and uh, talk some more animation. Um, uh, Dave has not seen Ghost in the Shell. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Oh, I love Uh, Ghost in the Shell. I would love to do Ghost in the Shell and uh, Rintero's Metropolis. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, I haven't seen that one. either. Yeah, I think maybe we should make that a a date. Let's do it. Yeah. um, Yeah, Metropolis and uh, Ghost in the Shell. So maybe maybe there'll be one coming up. Uh, uh, Dave, if we can, we should try to squeeze in a quick Christmas uh, episode. (laughs) Yeah, you know Exactly, we could we could talk some what Rankin Bass, some Rankin Bass. I might have to get Greg Bench back on and do some Rankin Bass and some Rankin Bass. Yeah, yeah, about a quick hour of you the animation. I I just saw HBO Max put some kind of new uh, stop motion animation thing, but I think it's for it's something about Santa. But Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen are the voices, so I'm guessing it's not for children. No, no, probably not. Yeah, it's like yeah, like uh, some animation like Sausage Party. I had a coworker that tells me the story about the time time when he's like eight year old kid got on, on like Netflix and watched Sausage Party. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, so, so it turns out I'm not the most lenient parent out there. <laughs> but anyway, it's been so much fun. Dave, uh, you want to let everybody know where they can find you? Absolutely. Um you can find me. I have my blog, dvdinfatuation.com. Still posting reviews over there. I'm on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. I have a, I'm on Facebook, um, on Instagram. I have my, um, I'm on Letterboxd. I have my YouTube channel that I haven't added anything to in a while. I think the last thing might have been the cicada. Uh, no, <laughs> no, it was it was the artist um, on uh, the yeah. boardwalk back in June. I remember posting that one. I haven't posted. Anything I was hoping in a while. for some Black Friday sale shopping, but I, you know what, <laughs> uh, I didn't get to Black Friday, but hopefully it's the day after Christmas. Oh, it's a day after Christmas. Yeah, okay, day after Christmas is when I go out and I do most of my. Okay, uh, then I was wrong. <laughs> mo- most of my most of my shopping. So hopefully I'll get a video for that out there as well. Um, 
and uh, other podcasts. Uh, I have my DVD Infatuation podcast. Uh, newest episode probably going to be released maybe by the time this episode comes out. It's uh, Greg Bench joins me. And we're talking James Bond. We look at the entire James Bond series and uh, very impressed by Greg's knowledge of that series. He did such a great job. He brought so much knowledge uh, to that. Uh, taught me a few things about James Bond, things I didn't know. Um, so that was, that was great. Uh, check that one out. And that's over on considering the cinema, uh, Jay of the Dead's, uh, podcast or Jay of the Dead's, uh, yeah, his podcast yeah. is sort of an offshoot of that one. Um, and of course I'm on land of the creeps, uh, with, uh, my good friends, uh, Greg Amortis and Bill Van Bagel. Uh, we have another episode coming up. We just released one where we looked at serial killers, real life serial. It was a really good episode too. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, um, some, some really intense movies, you know, some that we could, like Greg said, we couldn't really give ratings to these films because it's hard to recommend these. Yeah. Um, If you want to feel really bad. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, uh, the one for me was Carla. Uh, about Carla yeah, Homolka and, and, and her husband. That ruined was, Laura. I always, I had kind of a little bit of crush on Laura Prepon from uh, the 70s show, and then that yeah. kind of killed it for me. Oh, I'm t- but she was good in it. She's she good. She's good in good it. In but it. it's the it's, she's, she's so good in it that the character leaves that residual in your yes, mind. Yes, and it's not. And you shouldn't yeah. like that character. You but, um, like that and character. I, I just got to shout out to him because my uh, co-host on – Phantom Galaxy, Bill is, and in your co-host too, and Land Creeps is always talking about this movie. We actually even covered it here. Uh, Ten Rillington Place. I didn't yes. know of that movie until I met Bill, and it is a and good I didn't either. Movie. Bill's the one who turned me onto that one as well, and that one for me was the movie of that episode. Yeah. You'll never Ten look Rillington at John Place. Hammond the same after no, that movie. You will, not. you will never look at Jurassic Park's John Hammond quite the same again. No. Um, and then of course, um, over on uh, Horror Movie Podcast, uh, where. Uh, Wolfman Josh and I are uh, keeping it going. We're, we're sort of keeping things going along. We've come up with some ideas for future episodes. We have ones that we recorded months ago that still have to be released. Um, and that's over on horrormoviepodcast.com. And Land of the Creeps is landofthecreeps.blogspot.com. And, of course, you can find them on any of um, uh, you know whatever podcast server you have. Same with the DVD Infatuation Podcast. Just look for Considering the Cinema. And you'll get that one as well. Cool. All right. And Chris, is there anything uh, that you either wanted to mention or wanted to plug uh, before we close up? Uh, uh, unlike uh, you, Nathan and Dave, I am a nobody. <laughs> I have nothing to plug. Here. You're you're not a nobody. You have just wait. Yeah, exactly. You have and you have that YouTube. I do, but don't you have a YouTube yeah. channel? Yeah, but right now it's private. Um, if anybody wants. I mean, if for whatever reason anybody wants to check out the projects and stuff I'm working on, I do have an art station. Just look up Christian Connect on artstation.com and you can look at some of the projects I'm working on. Other than that, you know, I'm a pretty private person. <laughs> That's cool. That's a good way. Yeah. I, I like I am on Facebook basically just to uh to talk to these guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife was like, are, are podcasts like a uh, virtual pub for you? And yeah. I'm like, yeah, basically. It's like I grab the alcohol, go downstairs, and I hear you laugh for like three hours. I'm like, yeah, it's about right. You don't have to worry about driving. So, yeah, it was, it's was. it been a blast, Chris, uh, having you on. I look forward to seeing more uh, of your stuff as you work on it. And good luck in everything you do. You. And you're welcome back anytime. I'd lo- I definitely want to have you back. And what we'll do... We can do some more uh, Studio Ghibli, and I would love to do Ghost in the Shell and Metropolis. So we will we'll get that set up, and uh, 
Yeah, thank you. And thank you. As always, you can find us. We're Phantom Galaxy at podbean.com. We are on Facebook at Phantom Galaxy Podcast. We also have a Phantom Galaxy uh, group page, which is going really well. And uh, Dave, who posts all over the place, is po- he's doing he's posting in, in, in this group as well. You're, uh, you, you do, you've been doing every movie, a movie for every day of the month. And last month was Slashers, and this month is Christmas. Yeah. Uh, I guess movies and maybe TV shows and things like that. Yes, and there's and, going to be plenty of animation. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm, well, I'm going to start. I'm going to start today doing uh, particularly specifically like uh, Christmas TV specials. So nice. um, I figure I'm going to be well, there's at least thirty Doctor Who specials, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and some other stuff and some Christmas specials. So uh, you can check us out over there. We're on Facebook at Phantom Galaxy. And until the next time, this is the Illustrated Fan signing out. Take care, everyone. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.